You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Steve Clark, Medical Director of the Women's and Children's Clinical Services Group, Hospital Corporation of America, on behalf of his co-authors to discuss his paper entitled, The Clinical Impact of Nurse-to-Patient Staffing Ratios in Women Receiving Intrapartum Oxytocin. This manuscript is published in the February 2014 issue of the American Journal of Perinatology. The authors set out in this study to evaluate the effects of one-to-one nursing care for women receiving oxytocin in labor from both a cost and safety perspective. Oxytocin is used in as many as one-half of U.S. deliveries, either for induction or augmentation of labor. While in general a safe medication, oxytocin has the potential to contribute to fetal complications, and thus administration in labor requires careful monitoring. The frontline provider who performs much of this monitoring is the labor nurse. What is not known is the frequency of fetal monitoring and thus the nursing staff to patient ratio needed to achieve this monitoring that will result in optimal resource cost and minimal adverse outcomes. This study was a retrospective review of laboring patients during 2010 from HCA-affiliated U.S. hospitals. During this time, there was not uniform nursing staffing policies for oxytocin in labor, and staffing levels were left up to each unit. The study design consisted of three parts. Part 1, the percent of time each hospital had nurse-to-patient staffing ratios of 1 to 1. This was set up in quartile categories. Number 2, ICD-9 coded data for adverse perinatal outcomes were collected for all women who received oxytocin in labor. The outcomes of interest analyzed included primary cesarean, fetal distress, amniotis, endometritis, multiple complications, and or birth asphyxia. Number three, and finally, a gap analysis was performed to compare actual staffing levels with a hypothetical model of one-to-one staffing ratio. Let's review the results. In this study, 49% of women who delivered at HCA hospitals in 2010, or 101,777 women total, received oxytocin in labor. For primary cesarean delivery and overall combined complications, the rates increased significantly as the frequency of one-to-one nursing increased. Rates of fetal distress increased with decreased frequency of one-to-one nursing staffing. There was no trend in birth asphyxia across staffing levels. Based on current HCA staffing levels over this time, extrapolation to a one-to-one staffing model would require an additional 1,618 full-time nursing equivalents and cost HCA an additional 97 million U.S. dollars annually. The authors thus conclude that based on this data, One-to-one staffing ratios cannot be supported universally for women receiving oxytocin in labor. In addition, the incremental cost estimate remains unjustified. We are very fortunate today to have Dr. Steve Clark with us for a discussion of this manuscript in greater detail. Thank you, Dr. Clark, for joining us today. You're welcome. My first question deals with the outcomes. So, for the outcomes of primary cesarean and all combined outcomes, 
Do you have a suggested reason why increased staffing may be associated with increases in these adverse outcomes? Well, there are two possible hypotheses uh, here. In particular, with respect to cesarean delivery, I think that it is uh, fairly well accepted throughout the United States that many of our unnecessary cesareans result from too much intervention. And so it is, uh, I guess, hypothetically possible that too much uh, intensive nursing uh, scrutiny uh, of a patient leads to the detection of potential problems which really aren't that bad and then uh, could ultimately lead to unnecessary cesareans. Now, I think that's a, that's a possibility, but I don't believe that is the probable cause of what's going on here. I think the probable explanation for that simply has to do with differences in acuity. Our nurses are really quite good at staffing intelligently and assigning one-to-one -one staffing to those patients who are at highest risk for adverse outcome and who are at highest risk for cesarean delivery because of their underlying risk factors. And so I believe that it's much more probable that the explanation for that particular uh, item is simply that the uh, high-risk patients were not uh, uniformly distributed among the different staffing levels, which is a good thing. Uh, we want people with higher acuity and higher risk factors to have more intensive nursing staffing. But, of course, uh, if you do that, then you're going to end up with a result like this where uh, more intensive uh, nursing staffing is associated with adverse outcomes or is associated with more cesareans, but is probably not causally associated with those things. Very interesting. So it is possible, certainly, that there may be an over-analysis of fetal monitoring data when you have increased staffing ratios, but it sounds like that the more probable explanation for this observation may be that it's simply there's more going on in the decision-making for nursing staffing than just the ratio. And in fact, it's probably more of an acuity-based decision process. Exactly. We all recognize the fact that cesarean delivery for abnormal fetal heart rate tracings is a major cause of cesarean delivery, and that retrospectively, the majority of those cesarean deliveries turn out to be unnecessary. So one sure. could say uh, less monitoring equals less cesareans with no change in outcome. Now, I really don't want that to be the message of this because I'm a big fan of electronic fetal heart rate monitoring, but that's a possibility, but as you've stated so nicely, I believe it is not likely uh, the answer. Sure. Acuity is likely the answer. Well, this leads very nicely to my next question, because clearly in your study, one of the things that we see is that there are certainly a difference in the nursing to patient staffing ratio across the HCA hospitals that are included in the study. So given that there is this unequal distribution of one-to-one -one nursing across the included hospitals, what do you think are the underlying reasons a hospital would use one-to-one -one nursing at a higher incident rate compared to those that did not? Well, we think it simply has to do with this matter of acuity. Our facilities range from uh, major university centers to uh, small hospitals delivering less than 100 babies a year in rural areas of the United States and, of course, everything in between. I would make one correction in answering this, a correction to your initial statement, if I may. The study was not looking at the efficacy of one-to-one -one staffing. 
for women receiving oxytocin. It was looking at the efficacy of a mandatory universal policy of one-to-one -one staffing for women receiving oxytocin. We are fully cognizant of the fact that there are many patients receiving oxytocin for whom one-to-one -one staffing is a very good thing and a very necessary thing. But there are, of course, other patients with oxytocin, as we point out in the article, for whom one-to-one -one nursing is not necessary. Uh, oxytocin is simply a tool which is used across a wide spectrum of patients, from the woman being induced, uh, say, electively at 41 weeks gestation or 40 weeks gestation, who has no risk factors, to a woman with severe preeclampsia and intrauterine growth restriction and oligohydramnials uh, who, and acute fatty liver of pregnancy, we can go on and on, who's being delivered at 34 weeks gestation. And obviously, one of the messages of our study is to paint all of these women with the same broad brush and say just because they are receiving oxytocin, they must have one-to-one -one staffing is simply not justified. So we uh, believe that those facilities that have higher acuity patients are more likely to staff more frequently one-to-one, -one, and those facilities who would transport out their high-acuity patients are less likely to staff one-to-one. -one. But because we could show no difference in the outcomes, it suggests that they are making these decisions in a very intelligent, responsible manner, as they should. Certainly. Was there any regional associations seen in the HCA hospitals that were looked at? Is there any, are there any states that seem to use more one-to-one -one nursing or any regions of the country that seem to use more one-to-one -one nursing? Not that we could determine. Now, in your study, it was stated that there was a mean duration assumed for oxytocin infusion of 8.5 hours. Now, given that one-to-one -one nursing may have other benefits when oxytocin is used, would you propose that there may be other outcomes of one-to-one -one nursing that may be beneficial that were not studied under this current presentation? Well, of course. Uh, first of all, we determined the 8.5 hours from a previously published study in 2007 in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in which we looked at that specifically. And in fact, the mean duration of women receiving oxytocin in that study was eight and a half hours. So that wasn't both completely out of the hat here. But yes, there could theoretically be benefits for outcomes that we could not examine. When you're using a, uh, a large population base like this, unfortunately this and many, many other studies are limited by being able to only look at ICD-9 codable outcomes. There are other things that occur during labor. For example, the niceness of the labor could be enhanced. That is, the, the niceness of the experience of the mother could be enhanced by a greater frequency of nursing care. On the other hand, the niceness of the labor might not be enhanced, as many women are desiring a more family-centered and less provider-centered approach to childbirth. So there's an example of a patient satisfaction with the nursing attention they got. There's an outcome that we simply did not examine, and there are theoretical reasons that could have gone either way in terms of either enhancing the patient's experience or not enhancing the patient's experience. We would, of course, also like to have looked at things such as long-term neurologic function at age five years, some of these longer-term outcomes, but very, very few studies examining the impact of labor interventions are able to look out this sort of distance 
And so, yes, there are, and in the paper, in fact, we discussed even some other issues that we would like to have looked at but simply could not because they were not ICD-9 quotable sorts of events. However, I will say that the outcomes we looked at are the outcomes that most studies examine when they are looking at trying to assess the impact of different intrapartum interventions on newborn outcomes. So I would propose then it sounds like in the future as we move to ICD-10, you will probably have an increased richness of data for which to potentially mine and, and address questions like the one addressed by this study. We certainly hope that will be the case. Certainly. Now, Dr. Clark, in conclusion, I just want to ask you, given that this is going to be data that certainly labor and delivery units, administrators, nursing administrators are going to examine and look at, and it seems to point at some reassuring signs. For instance, it's reassuring in this data that we do not see an impact with regard to birth asphyxia. But on the other hand, we do see an increased risk of cesarean delivery as we increase or as we approach that one-to-one staffing ratio, which probably suggests that there must be a happy medium where we are not over-responding, but yet we're providing adequate coverage for our unit. So how would you propose that staff, administrators, nurses interpret this information moving forward, and what are the things that you would like to look at to further clarify this question? Well, I think that there are two main lessons to the reader and to hospital staffs, hospital organizations, professional organizations. The first is the very specific outcome that we talked about here, namely mandatory universal one-to-one nursing policies for all women receiving oxytocin simply do not improve outcomes but cost a lot of money and would be a very poor use of resources. There's a a bigger issue, though, which I think is uh, probably the more important part of this study, and that has to do with the the, uh, cautions for hospitals or medical staffs or uh, professional organizations or hospital systems who put out rules, regulations, policies, practice mandates. And the lesson there is, as we have outlined in the discussion section of the article, before a responsible group of individuals attempts to impose a mandatory change in the way care is provided in the United States, and this goes well beyond obstetrics, there are several factors which really need to be considered. Number one, it ought to be evidence-based there should be at least some evidence suggesting that the policy being proposed actually is supported by outcomes-based evidence and improves outcomes. Number two, you've got to look at the cost of this, understanding that we already spend twice as much for healthcare as our next nearest developed nation competitor, uh, and there are not likely to be a lot of additional healthcare dollars to be spent for such policies. And so we've got to look at the cost-benefit ratio, even if there is data suggesting a benefit. And of course, number three, because policies such as this don't simply require, let's say, buying more machines or uh, purchasing more drugs, but instead actually require more nurses, and nurses are scarce, we've got to understand that if you were to pull, for example, nationally in this study, the 27,000 additional obstetrical nurses on the labor and delivery that a mandatory policy would require, 
that means there are 27,000 less nurses who are going to be available to take care of other patients. And you've got to ask yourself exactly which patients are we now going to take a nurse away from to support this policy. And so I think one of the reasons that I like this paper anyway, and I think it should be discussed, is perhaps not so much for the specific message, but for the general message that this proposed policy of mandatory one-on-one universal oxytocin staffing is a prototypical example of a policy that should never have occurred and, and a way that you should not develop a policy. Number one, there is not a shred of evidence, as best we can tell, in any language, in any journal, in any year that mandatory one-to-one staffing improves any index of patient outcome. Number two, it is incredibly expensive. And then number three, as we said before, it also mandates the transfer of nurses from one area to another area if this were to be implemented tomorrow. And therefore, uh, no thought was given to what impact this would have on the patients from whom those nurses are about to be transported. So our study has a comment on a mandatory universal one-on-one oxytocin staffing policy is kind of a, a case study in how not to develop a policy and the way policies, and I think this may be very instructive as different organizations and hospitals and systems pursue the Institute of Medicine's guidelines to develop policies, to develop protocols, to standardize care. Those are all wonderful things. But you've got to keep these things in mind, and our article simply points out one example of a policy gone horribly awry which doesn't meet any of these necessary criteria. And we hope that the readers will take away from that some valuable lessons when they then go ahead and attempt to develop other important policies. I feel that very interesting from your discussion in the article, you referred to this as the zero-sum outcome, and that can be applied to cost. It can be applied to expertise in nursing from the standpoint that if you are going to apply an increase in cost, an increase in nursing, it's not like we're creating new nurses or new dollars. We're really taking away from something else. And I think this is certainly a very timely article in that we are looking at changes in healthcare moving in the next few years where we are going to need to look with evidence-based medicine at exactly how we can best use the resources that we have. Exactly. We certainly appreciate you taking time out today to spend with us and exploring this issue and your manuscript. And again, I want to remind the listeners that this is available in the American Journal of Perinatology, February 2014 issue. And we would invite you to visit the American Journal of Perinatology website to examine this article yourself and also develop conclusions as we have today with Dr. Steve Clark. Thank you very much, Dr. Clark, for joining us today. Thank you. You're very welcome. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.